I love the opening of this movie. I, I love the way the Universal logo goes backwards. I think it's so subversive. My name is Paul Anderson, and uh, I wrote and directed Death Race, and I also produced it with Paula Wagner and Mr. Jeremy Bolt, who's sitting beside me. Hello, my name is Jeremy Bolt. We actually have uh, messed around with the studio logo once before when we did Event Horizon, and uh, something we really enjoy, messing with the corporate logo. Yeah, not messing with the corporation, but messing with their logo. We first became involved in Death Race um, 14 years ago. Uh, Roger Corman had seen our very first movie um, called Shopping, which was Jude Law's first film. Um, it was the first time he was in front of a camera, which I'd written and directed and Jeremy had produced. And uh, Roger saw it at the Tokyo Film Festival where he was uh, one of the judges. He very much liked it and he bought it for release in America. Um, it, by which point I'd actually made another movie, which was my first American movie, Mortal Kombat. And uh, that came out, was a big hit, was number one. And on, uh, on Monday after our number one opening, I went to go have lunch with Roger to talk about his plans for the release of shopping. And he said to me, it's great kid, you've got a number one movie, what do you want to do next? And I said, well, Roger, I, I really want to kind of uh, remake, reimagine one of your old movies, uh, Death Race 2000. And he said, that's great, kid. We'll make it your next movie. And in typical Hollywood development fashion, it then took us 14 years to get the film made. Uh, we went through several different iterations of Death Race. Um, the first, uh, and this was about probably a decade ago, uh, was a much more futuristic version of the movie. It was called Death Race 3000. Um, so it was, uh, it was set in the far future, and the cars obviously were much more futuristic. We had hovering cars, we had invisible cars, uh, we had transformer cars. Um, it was all very much like the, uh, the pod race from Star Wars Episode I, uh, but a whole movie of it. It was also a race around the world rather than a, a track on an island in a prison in America. And uh, I think, you know, that movie, as well as everyone reading the script and thinking it was probably going to be the most expensive movie ever made, which was one reason why it didn't get made, it also seemed to lack a certain intensity. And, and that's when we started thinking about having a more contained race. Finished! Give me the napalm. Nothing works! I started to imagine the movie more as a prequel to Roger Corman's Death Race 2000 rather than a sequel. Um, one of the things that fascinated me about Roger's movie was how, how was it that the Death Race had become the national sport of America? Because um, clearly it had a much more kind of gritty underground start to it um, and, and it had kind of grown into this huge event. So I became very fascinated with the idea of the genesis of the Death Race and, and that's really what we put on screen here. Um, although, you know, the year 2000 has come and gone, obviously, um, Roger's movie felt much more futuristic. So, in my mind, the events of our movie take place probably 15 to 20 years before the events of, of Roger Corman's movie. But obviously, you know, the Frankenstein character is still, you know, he still is the crowd favourite. The other thing is that the uh, tremendous growth in reality television, uh, which has only really happened in the last 10 years, um, you know, you could actually see something like the death race happening within about uh, five or six years. And when we first started development, reality te television hadn't taken off. So uh, it feels more grounded in reality because of that. 
Also, we kind of changed the way we wanted to shoot the movie. I think, you know, 10 years ago, we were all in love with CG, and uh, we, we developed a very CG-heavy movie. And, uh, you know, more recently, we've become obsessed with trying to deliver things as practical as possible. And that, we saw, as one of the big challenges of this movie was to develop and film uh, the most spectacular car stunts we could, but do it all practical, have no CG cars in the movie, um, have, uh, ha have everything as practical as possible. Which is a great idea. Uh, it's very, very difficult. I mean, there were moments during the shoot when I thought, wow, I wish we were, we were doing the CG. It would have made life a hell of a lot easier. And uh, it's credit to our amazing stunt team and uh, our uh, special effects team that we, we were able to pull it off. It's very difficult to go back to the French connection. I mean, you really have so much respect for those old 70s movies where they had to do it all for real. But also the nature of those movies, the way they were covered, quite often you would have the cameras at the side of the roads just panning with the action. Um, and I think audiences have become more used to being immersed in the action right now. You need the camera in the middle of it, in the thick of it. And, um, and that required us to develop a lot of very specialized rigs um, so that we could get the camera in the middle of the action without you know, killing the camera crew or the guy who was driving the car. Um, so there was a lot of practical challenges on this film and it really meant that we spent a year in pre-production in Montreal where we shot the whole film, um, developing these rigs and developing the car races and, uh, and all the stunts so that they could be executed in a spectacular fashion but in a very safe fashion. I, I just love this shot here, Paul. Jason, so iconic with the, the flames behind him. He was actually so close, he really burnt his ass on that shot. <laughs> yeah, that, this was all shot in a steel mill just outside of Montreal, and um, it was very difficult to shoot in. Um, you couldn't really move around very much because they're very, very dangerous places. And uh, we had to wait for the steel to pour, and uh, it would only pour once every hour and a half. And they could never really tell you exactly when the pour was going to happen. Um, so we just had to basically wait with Jason, and then we would be told about two minutes beforehand, it's going to happen. So we'd rush to get Jason into position. And we'd given him the perfect safe place to stand. Uh, we'd discuss this with all the, the guys who worked at the steelworks, so that the shot, no visual effect, he could actually be in the same shot with this, this super hot steel, which if you got just a speck of it on you, I mean, it would burn its way straight through your skin. Um, and I think because they were excited that Jason was there, they gave us an extra large bucket of steel. Normally it was just a small amount of slag that would pour out of the, this bucket. Uh, but on this occasion, uh, as you can see in the film, it was like a whole lake of burning steel. And uh, it looked spectacular, but it all, I mean, Jason, he definitely felt the heat, that's for sure. I love the, the, uh, this steel mill sequence. I mean, it, it again has an echo of a 70s movie, a little bit of the deer hunter. It's, it's also not perhaps what you're going to expect when you come to see Death Race, and it grounds our character in a reality, um, in, a, in, a, in an America with an industrial heartland, but where people are losing their jobs, where the economy is in trouble. Yeah, the, the movie's set in a kind of mythic city. Um, it's somewhere in the American Rust Belt, but we never specify where exactly it is. Uh, although we shot the movie in Montreal, the inspiration visually was very much cities like Detroit and Pittsburgh you know, that classic American Rust Belt. Though interestingly, we found the best industrial decay that we could um, it was, in, was in Montreal. You know, we looked at those cities, Detroit, Pittsburgh, we looked at New Jersey. Uh, we even looked at Eastern Europe because I felt there would be a lot of big industrial decay there. So we looked at Poland. Um, but the, the best 
and biggest abandoned industry we could find was actually in Montreal. And one of the reasons for that, although Montreal is a very beautiful city, it's actually like the Canadian city of culture, um, one of the reasons why I have all these crumbling industrial works, which you'll see later in the movie, uh, was that they had, um, they had like a terrorist problem in the 1970s. Um, uh, some of the Quebecois were fighting for independence. And uh, so they were taking hostages, people were being kidnapped, and a lot of big business just pulled out of Quebec and pulled out of Montreal and moved to Toronto. So you had all these abandoned industrial works that had been empty since the 1970s. And that, that gave us the backdrop for, for what we needed. He's just awesome, Jason. Look at that anger. I mean, Paul, you love the industrial wastelands as well. I mean, going back to shopping, the opening of our first movie has a kind of Blade Runner-like industrial wasteland shot. And uh, that, that uh, top shot we've just seen, again, has that, that echo. Well, I grew up in the north of England and uh, in, in the midst of a lot of big industrial decay. So it's a kind of, it's a, it's a look I like a lot. Um, and this movie does have a lot of echoes of our first film. Um, you know, our first movie we made uh, very cheaply in the UK. Uh, but it was about, uh, it was a dystopian tale of kind of young kids who stole cars and engaged in, you know, car chases with the police just for kicks and then would kind of loot department stores. That's why it's called shopping, because they would drive a car through a store window and then go in and just kind of loot the store. Um, we did a lot of what we felt was spectacular car stunts back then, although we had to kind of shoot them in like a couple of hours. Um, and uh, it was very different for the British film industry at the time because the British film industry was just making a lot of art movies or a lot of movies about sexually repressed butlers in the 1930s. <laughs> um, so our, our shopping was the, you know, it was a slick and sexy looking film. But we didn't quite have the budget to pull off what we wanted. And um, it's, a, it's interesting kind of viewing, watching the two movies back to back, Shopping and Death Race, because there are definitely some ideas we took from Shopping and put into this movie. Only this time, instead of having to shoot the stunt scenes in two hours, we, you know, we would take an entire week to shoot some of them. But certainly the, the backgrounds, you know, the abandoned industrial works, the flame, the smoke, the steam, um, it, it's very influenced by our earlier work. She's a good actress, this girl. I mean, um, it's very important to us when we, when we make our films that even the smaller parts we cast as well as we possibly can given the budget restrictions. There's nothing worse, I think, than you're watching a movie with big actors and big movie stars and then suddenly there's a small part and there's a bad actor. It really just lets the whole film down. And uh, I was very pleased to find this girl in, uh, in Canada. She's an excellent actress. That baby was a good actor too. Something smells good.
all of these uh, flash cuts here and the vary speed, um, again, this was all in camera. I wanted to give the movie a kind of organic feel. So although you can kind of have this kind of effect and do it in post-production, I wanted to do everything in camera. So it had a slightly more kind of physical, organic feel to it. Um, didn't feel, although it is stylish, I didn't want it to feel too stylized. And uh, six months later, and uh, Jace is off to prison. And it's Christmas, just to add to the poignancy of his situation. I love Christmas movies. Um, originally, we had, uh, we had a Christmas carol playing here. So this That's why the radio was in the, uh, the front of the bus. So this bridge, um, it's the ice bridge. It's a fantastic uh, narrow bridge that actually exists in Montreal. It's one of the reasons we wanted to go there. Yeah, it's, a, it's two kilometers long. It's a, just over a mile, mile and a third. And um, it's across the St. Lawrence. And the idea was it was built to, um, to block ice from coming down into, um, into the harbor in Montreal. Uh, but by the time the construction was finished, global warming had meant that they didn't have an ice problem anymore. It never iced over. Um, so it had become a bit of a white elephant. Um, and they were just using it basically as a bicycle path uh, to cross the waterway. Uh, so we closed it down for several nights and uh, we did a whole series of kind of stunts, quite spectacular stunts there. So it was a great location. And uh, in the distance, you can see the island. And uh, that's one of the few visual effects shots, big visual effects shots in the movie is the creation of this island. Uh, because obviously the island doesn't exist, although the bridge exists and the locations on the island, uh, the island itself is, um, is completely CG. Yeah, where the bus arrived that's actually a real prison decommissioned now but it's a real prison and they shot uh, they also shot a sequence from to Ca catch me if you can there jason in awesome shape he worked so hard uh with um our uh trainer logan the, logan hood logan hood who, who was one, who yeah. was one of the guys who trained um all the actors for 300 and um jason got in amazing shape for this movie he dropped to six percent body fat I think when he started with us, he was at about 18 to 20% body fat. He just, he just kind of shot a movie in London, and uh, anyone who's been to England will know, you know, the diet over there is quite heavy on beer and pies. So it's not conducive, as Jason would say, to a movie where you want to take your top off. So he took three months to get in phenomenal shape and uh, very strict diet, very strict exercise regime. And uh, what Logan said, um, who's the 300 trainer, he said basically... The way the guys in 300 looked after they'd worked out, then had all their abs painted on, and they'd still done a bunch of visual effects on top of that, that's the way Jason looked for real. Yeah, his body is totally for real. No steroids, no visual effects. The inspiration for this... And no special lighting even. You know, no. we're, we're just very kind of flat lighting on him. We weren't trying to kind of light his body in any special way. We wanted a, a kind of lean Robert De Niro in Cape Fear look, so you'd believe... Um, this is a guy who's been in and out of prisons all his life. The body and the tattoos. Yeah, I mean, there's, there was a line in the script that described Jason's character as McQueen cool and Bronson hard. And I think Jason is one of the very few actors uh, who are working in Hollywood right now that really has that 70s tough guy anti-hero vibe. This is a scene that uh, we cut out of the theatrical release of the movie because uh, we felt it kind of preempted 
the confrontation with Prochenko in the uh, the mess hall a little bit. Although I love Jason's line here, I think it's very funny. It kind of, I also felt it was undermining the Aryan Brotherhood because you know he beats three of them up here, then he beats them up in the mess hall, and and I think I, I think that was all working against Pachenko being a really credible adversary. Because I think in movies like this, you know, your your heroes can only be as good as the villains and the adversaries they have to fight. Talking of which, here's Joan Allen. Inspired by a real prison warden. Yeah, well, when we were developing the movie, I mean, I was aware that, you know, we were making kind of three movies in one. We were making a car race movie. Uh, we were also making a prison movie, and we're kind of making a war movie because of all the machine guns. Um, and the prison movie aspect of it, you know, there have been so many great prison movies, and they always have great warders in movies like Escape from Alcatraz, Shawshank Redemption, Cool Hand Luke. Um, and I was wondering, you know, how, how can we get away from that? How can we avoid the comparisons to those characters? Um, because they were so well done. And I thought one of the ways to do it, which would be fresh and original, is to have the warden as a woman. Because uh, there are plenty of female wardens um, in reality. It's just it's never been put on film before. And and also, I thought, how original to make the villain of the movie a woman, because that rarely happens as well. Driver? Never heard of him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I saw him race years ago. He was good. Did some time upstate. Killed his career. Uh, Jason and I, when we were in pre-production, we went to Corcoran Prison to do a little bit of research. Corcoran is the toughest prison in California. Um, it's where they send the kind of the worst of the worst. So in, in a way, you know, this prison is styled upon Corcoran. And that's where we came up with the idea for the warning, no warning shot sign, which I like very much. That was just taken straight from Corcoran prison. And they said there, you know, if a fight breaks out, they tell everyone to get down and then they just start shooting. Because if you're still standing up at that point, you're up to no good. Um, it's a tough, tough prison tough people in it and they have tough measures to keep them it's in It's a big, line. Uh, big gang prison as well. I mean, we really tried to respect the, uh, the separation of, of people by gang in prison as well. Yeah, I mean, prison life is all about gangs. It's which gang you belong to. And even if you don't want to, you, you're, you're forced to join a gang. So you're the wife killer. Takes a big man to kill a woman. Suppose you rape kiddos too. You hear that, everyone? Guy kills women, rapes kiddos. What do you think we want to do about that? We wanted to keep the fighting in the movie very fast, very realistic, very brutal. Um, so the fight scenes are relatively short and, uh, you know, we staged them in a very realistic manner. Um, you know, I was very aware that Jason was coming off a franchise like The Transporter where he'd done a lot of martial arts. And uh, the first time I sat down with Jace, you know, I was very clear about the fact that we're not making a martial arts movie here. Um, I didn't want any of that kind of stuff in the movie. The idea is that Jensen Ames is a tough guy and uh, he, has, he has some street skills, but it's very much a street fighting movie. Right now, that's the least of your problems. See, the warden does bad things to people that mix it up with the drivers. Yeah, the actor who plays Pachenko, who we just saw, he actually uh, 
we cast him based on this um, audition tape he sent us, which is very, very unusual when you cast a movie. But he sent us a tape. He was, he was in Poland, I think. And the audition tape was so fantastic, which he'd filmed himself, that we, uh, we cast him off it. And um, that's pretty, uh, pretty amazing. I think he's got a very big future, that guy. But the men you've provoked, well, let's just say, Mr. Ames, that the life term you've joined us for may be a lot shorter than you think. I understand tradition. Shutting up the new. I love uh, Hennessy's office. It's very kind of Ayn Rand. <laughs> Little model of the uh, prison there on the on the uh, right. No issue for me. What camera right? Yeah. Sorry. I think it's just great to pull. We got Joan Allen in this film. I mean, she's yeah, such Joan a great was our, our first first choice for the role, and um, you know, I thought we were going to have to like jump through a lot of hoops to get her get her in the movie because you know, obviously, she's you know three time Oscar nominee. I mean, she's won so many awards, um, and uh, she just really, really responded to the script and really responded to the character because she felt it was a very grounded character. And also, I think, you know, she wanted to play something completely different. She'd never played a villain like this. Because um, I said before, you know, that how many times is the villain in a big movie like this actually a woman? Um, so she was very excited about it. So I, I flew to New York and I thought I was going to have to kind of persuade her to be in the film. All we did was, was sit down, have a cup of tea. And by the time we'd finished the cup of tea, she was in. His return to the track is highly anticipated. And therein lies my problem. No one knows yet, but poor Frank died on an operating table. I mean, having an actress on her level in your film, it makes everything that much more believable. She grounds it. She has such gravitas. Yeah, the idea um, behind Terminal Island, although it's not completely explained at the start of the film, it was, it was in earlier drafts of the script, and, um, but we felt it was almost too much information to give away at the start of the film. It was too much text. Uh, but we felt the way the death race had come about was that there had been a riot at Terminal Island, like a prisoner revolt, and it had been broadcast live um, using not only helicopter press cameras um, and press cameras from outside the prison, but also using the closed circuit camera system within the prison itself. And what people had seen was like several inmates and a couple of prison guards being killed live on national television. And this had led to a m massive, massive ratings and also had made Terminal Island famous. Um, so the following year, the same network that had broadcast um, these, the, the riot then instituted a series of cage fights within the prison. Um, and then that pretty much leads into what was described at the start of the film. Really nice cinematography here. Um, our director of photography, Scott Kivan, this was the first time I'd worked with him. Um, we, we used him because we really liked a movie he'd shot called Stomp the Yard. And uh, if you've seen that film, I mean, it, the, it's a dance film, but the dance scenes have such visceral impact. I mean, they feel so brutal uh, that I thought, wow, if this guy can kind of make dancing feel this exciting, uh, and this potentially violent, imagine what he can start to do with fight scenes and with car scenes. So we really wanted to kind of let him loose on an action movie. But it's a m magnificent achievement, this uh, 
from a, a stomp the yard to this, I mean, this was a huge uh, lighting challenge. And um, he pulled Yeah, because it off. He, was, he was lighting, you know, some of the stretches of uh, racetrack at night. I mean, there's over a mile that he was having to light, which is, a, you know, a big challenge coming from having come from a movie. I mean, Stomp the Yard was probably the biggest movie he'd done at that point. Yeah, I think he also did Cabin Fever, but that was obviously a much lower budget. He's a very gifted DP. I mean, look at the lighting there. It's just fantastic. Now, we built this set in an abandoned railway factory um, in Montreal. And uh, this was really our our principal location for the film. Um, this railway factory was huge. It was about a mile long. Um, so we managed to find locations to build the auto shop, which is here, uh, the interior cell block we built here as well. Um, and a lot of the racetrack is, is here, either racing between the buildings or racing inside the buildings. Uh, we also had our production office here. And in fact, our production office is, is in a lot of the shots. You know, you can see where we kind of prepped and planned the whole movie from. Jensen Interceptor up three times. Fred Kohler channeling a bit of the Rain Man there. Jensen Interceptor. Ian McShane, which being British, it was fantastic to have Ian in our film because he's a huge uh, actor in Britain and recently, since really Sexy Beast, seems to become a huge star in the States. Again, a brilliant actor. This is Frank. Show you around. We have a fully functioning auto shop, just like you'd find in the outside world. Each team has their own shop. We don't help them. They don't help us. To the inmates, your Jensen Ames, New Grease Monkey. Nobody will know you're Frank except us on the team and a handful of the guards. Nobody. Jacob Vargas on the right, playing Gunner. We saw him in uh, this movie, Bobby, and uh, he was uh, very, very good in that. And um, again, we just tried to surround um, Jason, with as many really strong, good actors as possible, even in the smaller parts, we really worked hard on that in this film. Casting took a long time. That's a good question. Hennessy's had a whole wing of the prison in isolation. Just in general, preparation for the film was, was very long and very elaborate because once we'd found these locations, we then had to kind of tool all of the race scenes to the locations so that the cars could really interact uh, with these fantastic big warehouses that we'd found with pillars and, you know, with bridges and things like that. So, you know, we, we changed a lot of the script to fit the location, which, you know, put us back about six months. Um, but I think we got a much better movie out of it because of that. Just in case. And we had some fun customizing a personal... The Mustang, the monster. We... we we wanted cars that were uh, people could relate to. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted people to drive down a freeway and recognize all of the cars from the movie uh, so that you could really imagine, wow, I mean, um, you know, you drive past a Mustang and you can really imagine how it could be fitted out with these machine guns and with the armor plating. It's certainly one of my fantasies whenever somebody cuts me up on the freeway. It's like I always imagine, God, wouldn't it be great if I had a rocket launcher mounted to the front of my car? There was an earlier draft where we had cars, we had Ferraris and Lamborghinis, um, but not only would that have been extremely expensive, we just felt that... It was just too exotic. Yeah, exactly. And we felt that people wouldn't be able to relate to them as much as, you know, um, a Dodge Ram, a Chrysler 300, the Mustang. Fortified and their guns are bigger than your guns. You know, even, even the slightly more exotic cars like the Porsche, 
I mean, it's, it's an old Porsche. You know, you can pick up one of those for just a few grand. And that was the thing is, you know, we would buy some of these cars really for just a few thousand dollars. But then each of the cars would spend probably $200,000 um, on doing the car up. Um, pretty much we had to take away the entire bodywork and replace it with real armor plating. It's obviously very thin in the movie, uh, but it's all real metal. Um, you know, there's none of the original bodywork is left. The interior of the car you can see here has roll cages being put in for protection of the stunt drivers. Um, the suspension had to be altered to make it a rally suspension because the road surfaces were very uneven. Um, the axles quite often had to be beefed up because of all of the extra weight that was added by the armor plating and the machine guns. Uh, the engines had to be replaced or completely tuned up again because of all the weight because uh, we still wanted the cars to be high performance even while carrying all of this extra, uh, extra stuff in them. Um, so it, it was a long process to manufacture the automobiles. race takes place in three stages. So again, as Jeremy said earlier, this is a real prison yard. Um, all the exterior shots in the prison are, are, are in a real prison that was decommissioned about 10 years ago. Um, all the interior shots we would do in different locations or we would have to build. Um, that's because they had a big asbestos problem inside the prison. So we weren't actually allowed to go inside any of the buildings. Weapons and help with the running of the car. I'd like to talk to her ahead of time before the race. I had like a big titty girl to lick peanut butter off my toes, but it ain't gonna happen. Still a prison man, she's a chick. They get bust in from the women's facility upstate. Jacob giving us some uh, well-earned humor. Pretty women. Yeah, Machine Gun Joe's the only one that has male navigators, because he's gay. Actually, it's because he goes through them so fast, the audience gets squeamish. Yeah, he goes through them, through their ass. He cuts each kill into his skin as a souvenir right here. What about the rest of the drivers? I think the interior of the cars have quite a unique look to them. Um, it was something we struggled with for ages. Um, and in the end, what we did was we basically just took away a lot of the kind of dashboard. Um, a lot of the kind of plastic that you see in a normal car, we just took it away. And what you're seeing inside the cars is a lot of the wiring and original kind of lights and everything. So that kind of if you deconstruct a car, what you get is what you see inside these cars. The Hindu goddess of death, Kali, and that he is her messenger. Some of you might recognize Robin Shu, um, who plays 14K. He starred in my very first American movie, Mortal Kombat. And uh, we worked with him. He had a small role, a cameo role, in a movie we produced called DOA. And uh, we love Robin, and we always wanted to work with him again. And uh, I pretty much wrote this role for him. You used to race for NASCAR. Yeah, it was good, too. And also, the, the thing about Robin is he just doesn't age. He looks exactly the same now as he did 15 years ago when I first worked with him. Um, and he had pretty much the same hair for the last 15 years as well. He has this very long, luxuriant, kind of rather 1980s hair, I always think. Um, so that's, uh, although I wrote the role for him, I also wrote the role uh, so that he had to shave his hair off. Which he did willingly. Frank is still in the infirmary with 15 unhealed But I think it gives him a, you know, a pretty unique look. He's not going to make the race. You hear a lot. Who's the new fish? Tyrese is great. We really enjoy working with Tyrese. He's got a great uh, attitude. Um, he's very funny. He's a very good person to have around on set. The ugliest motherfucker here on this prison, yo. <laughs> funny, huh? 
You tell Frank when you see him. This race is between me and him. This time won't be no infirmary. It'll be the morgue. Tyrese and his whole crew. Um, there are a lot of gangs in the movie. So Tyrese has his own gang. Pachenko has his own gang. Um, 14K has his own gang. And uh, to kind of get that gang feeling going, uh, what I would do is I would keep the groups separate. And rather than giving any of the actors who were with a particular gang boss direction, I would always allow the actors who are in charge of that gang to direct their own gang um, so that they would appear much more like the leader. And I kind of encouraged that all the way through the shoot. So what you got was, you, you know, you got Pachenko's gang. They all would just hang out with him. Even when we weren't shooting, they'd be hanging out with him during lunch, for example. Um, they'd go out together at night. And I think it really helped enhance the kind of slightly... Uh, the edgy gang feel. So when some of these gangs kind of brush up against one another, you know, they don't, they really don't get on because they, they kind of kept themselves to themselves. That was very smart of you, Paul, to do that. I didn't even know you were doing that. Yes, I did that. Remarkable method, method direction. Yeah. Another good CG. Save me having to give them any direction as well. Ah, and of course, tricks of the what train, you realize see. as well is most actors do want to direct anyway. So, um, you know, uh, Max Ryan, who played Pachenko and Tyrese, I mean, they just rose to the occasion magnificently. Yeah. I think it ended up costing us quite a bit of money, though, because Tyrese never wanted to do anything without his gang. He, <laughs> he, was, he so much liked having them around him, so we would end up having to have his gang in every single scene he was in. Now you tell me. Jason Clark, excellent as uh, Joan Allen's sidekick. Uh, Jason Clark's in a TV show, Brotherhood, with a very good friend of ours, Jason Isaacs, so it was kind of fun to work with him on this. This is my favourite shot in the film, Paul. It's just so iconic. We worked very hard on that mask um, to make it something different. Um, you know, different from the original movie, but also, you know, once you start putting masks on people's faces, I mean, there's a danger it kind of becomes a bit too kind of comic booky superhero. So we didn't want him to look like Daredevil um, or Batman. But then equally, you know, he's got a tough look, but you don't want him to look like... Um, like Jason Voorhees either. So um, that kind of or organic look to the mask is something uh, that resulted from, I think we probably developed 20 or 30 different looks for the mask and then eventually ended up on this one. And the idea is that it's a rusted, beaten piece of metal that's been actually beaten out in one of the auto shops. So it has kind of a creepy feel to it, but also a very organic and real feel. He's all yours. Don't talk to the other drivers, Frank never did. Pardon the racing stripe on the side of the costume was very much inspired by uh, Steve McQueen in Le Mans. Yeah, and uh, in Le Mans, uh, McQueen wears a, a white outfit uh, with the stripe. So we basically, we just, uh, we took the same design for the costume, but uh, changed all the colors. You see at the end of the raceway there, um, there are lots of containers, shipping containers. Uh, they're hiding beautiful Montreal and uh, we found that a very cost-effective way to kind of create our racetrack um, so we would just rent a lot of shipping containers paint those chevrons on them and they would block out bits of the city that we didn't want to see <laughs> I love that guy standing there with his, with his tongue. tongue yeah just fantastic Natalie Martinez beautiful girl
I was a little worried we weren't going to get this shot of Natalie because... Um, this shot? Yeah, because uh, I, I kind of, when we were shooting it, I, I looked up and I, much to my horror, I discovered that the camera operator who was in the perfect position to get the shot of Natalie's bum was actually a woman. And I thought, oh no, now I'm going to have to go over there and just be very sexist and tell her, remember to pan down and get Natalie's ass. Uh, but fortunately, um, she did it magnificently. A good camera operator knows what to do. That's what it, I know. I drove with Frank. Watch your back. That scar on Natalie's face I love. Um, we actually lit, we changed the lighting slightly to kind of bring it out. It's not really as prominent as it appears, but that's a real scar. And uh, she got it when she was a little kid. And um, I think it was her uncle had uh, all these, uh, these cocks. And uh, she went into the backyard and one of them just came at her. And uh, she was very lucky not to lose an eye. But she ended up with that very distinct scar on her face, which I think is fantastic. I think it gives us so much character. Better looking than the last Frank. A few crashes to change that. Joan Allen's high-tech control room. I wanted like a high-tech cocoon within all the crumbling industrial decay. Um, one of the fun things about this location is that everything was was really in place. You know, that control room we built, it really looks over the auto shop in the back and through the windows at the front, you really see the starting grid. Um, so again, it kind of saved us. Traditionally, you'd build that as a set and then you'd have to do visual effects for the shots through the window. Um, I'm so glad we did it practically. For the low price of 250, access to over 100 live camera feeds. Watch from the car. This whole thing is very much inspired by real pay-per-view events that uh, you can see, like HBO boxing and things like that. We just wanted to kind of take it to the next level. To the death, featuring four-time winner Frankenstein, three-time winner Machine Gun Joe, Pachenko, Travis Colt. Audience favorite Frankenstein resumes his bitter grudge match with Machine Gun Joe. Frankenstein returns to the track after a six-month absence. They've missed him. He's the man that just won't die. 12 million hits on his angle alone. He hasn't even started the engine. We'll do 45 million viewers today. What are you in for? They say I killed a cop. Did you do it? Yeah. I love the rec tech feel of the interior of these cars. You know, the, uh, the seats they're sitting in are real ejector seats um, that we took from uh, an old fighter jet. Um, the triggers that are on uh, the steering wheel for the guns are actually uh, their drills. Um, so just triggers from, from uh, electric drills. So it's got a real kind of rough and ready feel to it. This is it. I like the bundles of wire, of metal cords that... Uh, well, we found those there. in scrap metal yards. Yeah. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the movie, um, our production designer, Paul Osterbury, did a fantastic job of just basically combing scrap metal yards and finding interesting items that we could buy for next to nothing to kind of use. Um, and those, you know, those steel bundles were very important, obviously, to kind of protect the actors and, and also the stuntmen from, from one another. You know, when those cars were driving by at high speed, you know, they really did provide 
a fantastic crash barrier just in case one of the cars would spin out of control. So glad we had that piece of orange. We left uh, the, the Chrysler with uh, some orange on it. it. Really stands out. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always seen this movie as, as much a kind of war movie as a, as a race movie. And I always knew that, that we would have some very frenetic action scenes and uh, some very fast cutting. And I wanted the audience to be able to identify which car was which and who was in which car very, very quickly. Um, so we had to make nine cars and each one had to have its own separate identity and its own separate profile. Um, and uh, I, think we, I think we pulled that off. It wasn't the easiest thing though. And one of the things was, you know, the, the Chrysler, for example, is one of the few cars that has a splash of color. That's right, there's the red on the front of the Monster and then the orange on the Chrysler. And uh, Pachenko's car has a light color to it. So all the racing stuff you're seeing here is totally practical. Um, some of the driving is being done by, by Jason, for real. Um, some of the interior stuff that you're seeing. Some of it is on uh, a stage with green screen behind them. Um, we did that because it's very, very difficult to, to mount cameras on a car and kind of get a real performance out of somebody when there's dialogue involved. It's, it's better if you can be a slightly more controlled environment. Um, but then what we would do is for a lot of the racing stuff where the cars are just bashing into one another, we would actually physically have Jason in the car and uh, let him drive down the track and let stunt cars bash into him um, because there was no dialogue involved. Except when it was, I mean, Jason would have, would have done every stunt possible, but there were some things that were so dangerous, I just couldn't let him do it. Wakey, wakey! So everything up until this point in the race was in Alston, which was the train factory we found. Um, at this point now, we transfer to our second major location, uh, which was an abandoned silo. Um, in the harbour at Montreal. What was great about this was it was really a two kilometre run, so we could really get the cars up to speed. Uh, there was water on one side, which allowed me to get a helicopter down nice and low and track with the cars. Shut up, man. You know what the hell I'm doing? What you gonna do? Even when we were doing some of the green screen stuff inside the cars, um, the cars would all be mounted um, on hydraulic platforms so that uh, we'd really be shaking the cars around a lot. It was very, very violent in there. So, for example, you know, where we had to have a scene where the, the monster gets rammed by Joe's car, we would really shake the car hugely. It was very uncomfortable for the actors and very uncomfortable for the camera crew because they were strapped to the exterior of the car and they were being shaken around a lot. You know, the camera crew would... Uh, I've never seen a camera crew wear so many hard hats and so much protective clothing as they did on this movie. It was a, it was a tough shoot. I've seen this race before. 
These cars are really traveling at speed as well. I mean, they're, they're not, as is so often the case, traveling slow, and then we, through the magic of cinema, make it look fast. I mean, they were going at uh, 50, 60, 70 miles an hour. Yeah, 60 is the kind of magic number that uh, you try and hit because it, it, 60 looks really fast. Um, and interestingly, the difference between 60 miles an hour and 100 miles an hour when you film it, it's not much. Um, you can't really tell that much of a difference. But you can sure tell a lot of difference between 50 miles an hour and 60 miles an hour. Um, so we tried to get the cars up to 60 wherever we could. Of course, what's, what was very dangerous about this movie was um, just the locations we were shooting in the environment. You know, this wasn't a real racetrack. There were huge, big metal pillars, uh, lumps of concrete, bits of rebar. Uh, it was very dangerous for the stunt drivers. This is so nasty, Paul. Thank you. I mean, you. this guy is just being totally crushed. I mean... Um, I do like constructing action scenes where it has several levels to it. You think something's really cool and then something else happens and then again something else happens. And that's what I thought about the spikes. You know, I think it's so great they come out of the ground and the car hits them. I mean, it's really satisfying. But what's even more satisfying than that is when the spikes sink down and kind of chop the car up. We wanted to make each section of the race have its particular character. We were worried that if it was just driving, it would become repetitive. So we introduced these obstacles. It also, I suppose, gives the, the whole experience a bit of a game feel. Yeah, the idea of the symbols on the ground um, were definitely to kind of make the race more interactive. So it wasn't just going around a track. Uh, you know, there's strategy involved. Um, you know, sometimes in this race, the worst place to be is up in front because you're in somebody's gun sights. But you have to be up in front if you're going to grab the symbols first. So it kind of it added a whole layer of strategy to, to the race, which I felt was important. And these were obviously inspired by power-ups from, from numerous video games. Again, this is all real machine gun fire. There's a real Caltrops uh, dropping out of the back of that car. And uh, this is Grimm's car. I mean, this is all, all real. practical. There's all no real. CG here at all. That was actually a mistake. Um, that car originally was supposed to spin about five feet into the air and hit the bottom of the sign. Uh, but when you do things practical, um, you know, unexpected things happen. And the car ended up going, <laughs> ended up going about 30 feet in the air and hitting the top of the sign. It made no sense whatsoever, because it, the car originally was supposed to just spin out of control and crash, but we ended up with all this fantastic footage of it being 30 or 40 feet in the air. And, uh, and then we kind of, we backtracked, and I came up with the idea that it should be hit by a missile um, to motivate it flying up in the air like that. So that was kind of a, a happy accident, you know, a bit of film that kind of went wrong, and then we ended up with something uh, much more spectacular because of that. We're streaming to 46 million viewers, man. Grim getting splattered there, of course, is, um, is a visual effect. <laughs> and life is not so cheap in Canada that we could do that for real. Offensive weapons are up. It's on. Now, this is a scene that, again, was cut out of the theatrical version. 
Um, it's a scene I like very much. We spent a lot of time shooting it. Natalie was a real sport. I mean, she's she would really lean out of the car, as you can see. You know, there's no green screen here. I mean, she's really leaning out of that car, smashing away, trying to kind of free up the jammed shell in the machine guns. Um, but when we cut the whole movie together, we felt we felt a couple of things. One, the race was very long. This first race was about 12 minutes long in the movie. With this scene in it, it was about 15 minutes, and it just seemed to go on a little too long. Too much good stuff, um, which can be self-defeating after a while. And also there was an element to it which I just didn't really believe. Um, I just felt there's no way she could have been hanging out of that car for so long without getting the head blown off. Um, so painful though it was, we took it out of the movie. And uh, I don't think you miss it in the finished film, but I'm very glad to see it back here. guns on the side of, of Tyrese, machine gun Joe's uh, Dodge Ram are actually from a helicopter. Yeah, they're called uh, Vulcan cannons. Um, they're usually mounted on Black Hawk helicopter gunships. And uh, we had to get a special export license for these two guns uh, from the American military uh, because obviously they don't like uh, the guns traveling out of the United States. Um, so it was, a big, it was a big deal to get those guns into Canada. They shoot 6,000 rounds per minute huge firepower and that just gives you a little indication that shot there with all those shells tumbling coach the tombstone won't take much more of this frank case those 50 caliber shells will be through the tombstone in a matter of seconds my advice either lose him or kill him travis colt in his racing green jaguar xjs my favorite car classic 80s car my father had one. Without the machine guns, obviously. Get on my lap. What? Get on my lap. One of the fun things about this sequence is originally it was conceived to be done outside um, because it was, you know, a car on fire, being T-boned, you know, spinning 30 feet into the air. There was no way that we could conceive that this could be done as an interior. And then when we found this location, this train factory in Montreal, I reconceived the race sequence to be inside because I thought, again, these are some spectacular stunts that, that have never really been a, attempted in an interior space. And I think they become even more spectacular when you see them inside. Well, it's more dangerous. I mean, you're closer to walls and girders and roofs. Yeah, I mean, that was all real. Yeah, that was all real. If that was outside, you lose control of one of the cars, it's fine, you just kind of spin out. You lose control of one of the cars in this kind of environment, you can hit one of those metal posts at 60 miles an hour, and uh, that is not a happy result. And again, just those cars coming through those doorways, um, they're traveling at speed, so again, you know, that really fantastic work from the stunt drivers here. 
shortcut. Punch it, we can beat him. I love Pachenko's car. I think it's one of my favorites in the movie. It's a 1966 Riviera, and uh, I had the idea to give it a chop roof to lower the roof, which completely alters the lines of the car and gives it that very kind of menacing, almost tank-like feel. Grim, Colt, and Syed are gone. Six remaining drivers alive. Subscribe to Stage 2 now. I love the condition this car's in. Just had the hell kicked out of it. But it's one of the uh, interesting challenges of the movie is when you do a normal car movie, the car pretty much like a NASCAR movie, like Days of Thunder or something like that, or The Fast and the Furious, um, the car looks the same throughout the race sequence. Um, what was interesting about this film, and uh, I say interesting, but what I really mean is a huge amount of work, is every time a machine gun shot at one of these cars, it would do damage. Um, which meant continuity-wise, uh, the damage had to be reflected in the film. And of course, when you make a movie, you shoot things out of continuity. So some days you'd be shooting a scene where the car had to be clean. Then in the next shot, because that was from a different scene, the car had to have so many bullet holes in the back, some in the front, some in the side. Then you could do another shot where the damage had to be even greater. Then you do a fourth shot and the damage had to be gone completely. So it meant when we were designing the cars, we had to make each of these panels very modular. Uh, so that we could lift off, for example, the back tombstone and put a new tombstone on uh, because at the start of a shooting day we might want it clean and then by the end uh, we might want uh, bullet holes all over the place. And, uh, and, and that was a huge challenge, I mean, just to keep track of what the car should be looking like and to constantly take these panels off and on. What can I do for you, Mr. Ames? You sure are lucky a driver like me just having the turn. Uh, that scene between Ulrich and um, Statham, uh, again, is a scene that we took out for the original theatrical version of the movie. I like it. I think it's a good little character moment between them. But Jason was giving Ulrich so much attitude, I kind of felt that it undermined Ulrich as a, as a villain and as a credible threat to him. So ultimately, we, we took that out. One of the challenges of the film is there are essentially three villains, um, actually four uh, Joan Allen's character, Ulrich um, Pachenko, and also the Machine Gun Joe character is not a, um, initially anyway, he's not a, a heroic good character. And uh, managing and maintaining the balance between them all was, was, quite, a, was quite difficult. Yeah, because in, in traditional movie structure, you have kind of like, you have the ultimate villain who used, tends to be the brains of the operation, like Alan Rickman in Die Hard. And then you have the muscle, who's kind of like the... Uh, the enforcer character. Um, but to have like four villainous roles in a movie, like Jeremy said, it was a it was a bit of a struggle to kind of make them all work and, and all be a credible threat to Jason because Jason is such a strong actor as well and such a strong physical presence. And we found with Ulrich in particular, um, the head guard, sometimes less was more. You know, he was a very, he looked very cool. I really liked his look a lot. And sometimes if he said too much, it kind of undermined his threat. So he ended up, I think he's a very good force in the movie, but he's a little more silent in the movie than was originally intended. I wonder what he'll say when I ask him why he did it. Why don't you look in a mirror? 
Poor Piper. It must be hard growing up with that knowledge. That your father killed your mother. That's great. Gun pointed right at his groin. <laughs> you wanted a monster. Well, you've got one. The American flag again. So it reminds me of Shawshank, some of this uh, imagery. Well, the prison um, probably dates from roughly the same period as that prison, although that was a red brick prison. Um, you know, I think they were constructed at roughly the same time. Yeah. Um, it's the interesting thing about prisons is really, you know, they perfected locking men away about 200 years ago, and uh, the technology really hasn't changed at all. And there are plenty of old prisons like this that are still in use. Simple fact is, world's changed since I've been in here. Don't know it, don't much want to. But this, this I know. Yeah, the movie has um, a very desaturated feel to it, and that's partly uh, in the digital grade that we did in post-production. But mainly it's uh, something that was kind of suggested to me just by the locations. We were shooting in a lot of locations that had been kind of abandoned, <clears throat> and had been the paintwork had been fading for a long time. So it was a very kind of muted color palette that we were working with in the principal photography. And then I just took that a little bit further in post-production. So really the only colorful things in the movie are, you know, the end of the movie, obviously, um, in Mexico, which is a completely different feel. But also in the body of the movie, it tends to just be like the red splash of the blood, uh, the red stripe on the monster on Jason's outfit. And that was a very deliberate choice was to kind of keep those primary colors uh, to a minimum uh, and really only have punchy color every so often. My name was Susie. Which feeds into the, your general idea of just keeping the film as real as possible and, and underlining that wherever you could. Yeah, I didn't want to impose a kind of a stylized look on the film. That's what I said to all the heads of department is, I want the movie to look stylish, but I don't want it to look stylized. I don't want it to look like we're trying too hard. Uh, and I don't want the kind of filmmaking to get in the way of the audience experience. Sometimes you watch a movie and you, it's like the filmmakers being right in your face. It's like, look at me, I'm clever, I'm clever. Look at this clever camera move. Look at how stylish this is. And you know, I, I obviously like stylish looking movies, but I, I wanted it to be stylish without being stylized, without the filmmaking being too obvious. Given the... This is uh, one of our few visual effects, because obviously uh, Tyrese didn't slice into his own cheek. Much though he is a committed actor. Um, there is a limit. Yes, exactly. Understandably so. I got this idea of him scarring himself from um, looking at a lot of keloid scars uh, that are very popular amongst uh, certain kind of African warrior tribes. 
uh, where the, the keloid scarring is deliberately done to kind of show your position within the tribe and how great a warrior you are. And, uh, you know, I felt that that was kind of a, a, a good look for Tyrese. You know, originally, um, you know, he marked the kills on the side of his car, kind of like a First World War fighter pilot or a Second World War fighter pilot. And then I thought, you know, how much cooler if he actually marks them on his own flesh. Maybe you're right. Take that break after all. Good call. Guy can't grind. It was freezing cold this night, as you can probably tell from the breath coming out of everyone's mouths. And uh, this was a fantastic location, the auto shop, but because of all the glass, you know, we really had to, normally a scene like this, which is all set at night, you'd shoot in the middle of the day and you'd just kind of black out the windows. There were so many windows here that wasn't possible. So, you know, we ended up having to shoot this fight scene all the way through the night. So a lot of this, and this is tough physical stuff, you know, Jason's having to do at, you know, three, four o'clock in the morning. Looking for me. And again, he wanted reality, you know, as I did. So that's a real chain wrapped around his neck. Um, you know, his, his neck by the end of this scene, it took us two nights to film this fight. Jason's neck just looked like hamburger. You know, it was really red raw because that chain had been dragged around his neck so much. We really wanted to uh, make the fight as real as possible, particularly as Jason has done the uh, more martial arts-based fights in Transporter and uh, for me, this actually, more than any other scene, has that Charles Bronson feel, poor yeah. street fighter Absolutely. sense to it. Well, I mean, he, he's, you know, Jason's perfect for a remake of Hard Times. That's nice because that's an unexpected beat. I mean, I think you sense there's going to be a fight. You don't expect uh, the List's character to come in and... and Help save Jason in that way. Wow. You know, all... <laughs> the head in the vice, I love that. Um, to give away a few filmmaking secrets, I mean, a lot of this set is just made out of rubber. Um, you know, those shelves that just went down is very, very thin metal. Um, the vice was rubber. That metal box is rubber, as are all the metal pipes inside of it. Um, again, very kind of thin metallic shelves that he smashed into here. Um, the giant spanner that Pachinko holds Yeah, the big, the big wrench. Um, and that's not to say, I mean, if someone swings at you with a rubber wrench and hits you in the head, it's going to hurt. Uh, but it's not going to send you to hospital. You made me do it. And all it... All it too. Again, this is something that was taken away um, in the theatrical cut. Uh, it's kind of interesting to see it back here, but uh, I felt it was kind of gilding the lily a little bit too much. I thought kind of Pachenko's admission uh, was enough and that having a flashback like this kind of took you out of the movie and took you out of the intensity of Jason wanting to kill this man. You're gonna die. But we thought, what the hey? You know, you've probably seen the movie already in the theatres. Uh, give you the option to see the, the stuff we took out as well. Oh, boys. Let's save that for the track, huh? 
Again, one of the few visual effects shots in the movie. Um, the island didn't exist. The prison section, though, this is all real. So what we did was we did a helicopter shot over the prison. So you can see the prison courtyard, uh, the star shape of the prison buildings. Um, but in the original photography, um, all you see are green fields around and some cows grazing. Um, and then as the visual effect, what we did was took away all the, the green fields, replaced it with digital water, and then the rest of the island as well is digital. What the hell were they building in and uh, those shots, I always knew those shots would be a challenge because so much of the movie is practical. Um, I think if you're watching a movie and there's a lot of CG in it, you just get used to it. Um, you take it for granted uh, because it's part of the visual language of the film. If, if, however, everything's practical and then suddenly 30 minutes in you see a big CG shot, um, it tends to stick out like a sore thumb. Uh, so those island shots, you know, we really worked hard to make them as photoreal as possible. Um, so the visual effects company, Mr. X, who's run by a very good friend of ours, Dennis Berardi, um, they were working on those island shots even before we started principal photography. So uh, those, those are very much the product of like a year's worth of work. I just got a comment on those back pull-ups Jason just did. Anybody who works out will know they're phenomenally difficult and painful. And he really did that, and Paul must have done seven or eight takes. Yes. So he probably did 80, 90 back pull-ups in that one session. Yeah. All for real. Yeah, I mean, Jason was so disciplined during this film. I mean, it's very much his movie. I mean, he's in virtually every scene. Um, so he would be on set every single day. Uh, you know, when you're an actor, you know, the, the crew call is usually like 7 o'clock in the morning, but the actors have to be there at 5.30 or 6 so they can go into makeup beforehand. And with him... Um, but with him, he would want to work out for an hour. So, you know, he wasn't turning up at the set at 5.30. He was turning up at the gym at 4.30 or even 4 o'clock. Um, so the, the guy worked phenomenally hard, uh, very disciplined, very disciplined in what he ate as well so he could stay in shape. Um, and towards the end of the movie, uh, he came up to me and he said, Paul, I just can't wait to eat cake and drink beer. Where is he? And I'm sure he has done that since then. Uh, he <laughs> earned it. <laughs> what are you doing? Also, the tattoos that you see on Jason, we were very... Um, careful in our research to get real prison tattoos um, and Jason really paid attention to that and that that took a lot of time to put them on yeah I mean every time you see him with his top off um, all those tattoos are really the product of like uh, two and a half three hours in the makeup chair did you kill the old Frank what tunnel comes up fast remember what happened to that napalm canister Ooh, this is where she remembers what happened to the napalm. Did you kill the old? Actually, well, these these interior spaces are a real blessing to uh, an action filmmaker as well because when you shoot a car chase sequence, one of the the hard things what, that you're trying to convey is a sense of speed. Um, and if you if you're in the outdoors um, and you have no terms of reference, it's hard to convey speed. It's like when you're driving in the desert. You know, if you don't have a, if you don't have buildings um, rushing past you, you're just out in the desert. You know, you can easily be driving at kind of 90, 100 miles an hour and not realize it. You know, you think you're doing 50 or 60. Um, what was great about all of these interior spaces and some of the exterior spaces as well was all the all the uprights, all the steel girders um, that I could have the the action vehicle on one side of the steel girders 
and the tracking vehicle on another so that the foreground is these steel girders going past and they did a lot to kind of enhance the sense of speed. Yeah, I mean, but I can't uh, praise our stunt team enough. Jack Gill, Andy Gill, who was the uh, stunt coordinator. Very brave guys. Yeah, and Jack Gill, who was driving uh, the hero car most of the time. I mean, in a way, this movie is a throwback to the 1970s and, and movies that we loved, like Bullet and The French Connection, um, you know, movies from the 80s like Walter Hill's The Driver. You know, back in those days when there was no CG, if you wanted a spectacular action sequence, it was up to a stuntman strapping himself into a car and doing something spectacularly dangerous. And uh, that's what we asked of these guys, and they really, really delivered. You know, we would have, for example, we built five Mustangs, um, and regularly at the end of a shooting day, four of the Mustangs, uh, sometimes all five of them, uh, would be in the auto shop being worked on all night because we would have destroyed or half destroyed five cars. You know, something like that, where you just slam a car into metal girders, you know, it's very unpredictable. You can burst tires, the cars can go out of control. Um, there was actually a lot of spectacular stuff that happened that never made it into the movie because continuity-wise it kind of didn't make sense. But quite often we'd be shooting a stunt like that and the Mustang would just spin out of control and smash into something. Um, so there was a lot of spectacular stuff kind of left on the cutting room floor. Again, this is all real machine gun fire. Um, we went through a phenomenal amount of ammunition. I think uh, the good folks in Montreal thought the Third World War had broken out a lot of times when we started uh, shooting these battle scenes. He's too heavily armored! If anyone's interested to go back and look at our first movie, distributed by Roger Corman, it's called Shopping, available on DVD. Um, you'll see this same action sequence, but done very, very cheaply. Uh, we did it with a, a van full of policemen and uh, an old BMW, and we shot it in about three hours. Um, it's nowhere near as spectacular as this, obviously, but uh, it's kind of the beginnings of the thought process that led up to... That sequence. Yeah, to this sequence. There's also a similar scene um, where... Where we had Natalie kind of standing up in the car and throwing the cigarette lighter out that ignited the napalm in the race before this. Um, we did a similar kind of thing where Sadie Frost stood up in the back of the BMW and started throwing cassette tapes uh, at some pursuing police cars. You know, kind of similar framing, similar ideas, uh, but executed with a lot more vigor in this movie. I love the sound effects in this scene when his hands are crunching on that glass. Yeah. If you look closely there, you can see it's all plastic and rubber. Very tough Montreal stunt guy there. Um, I was in discussion with our stunt, stunt coordinator, Andy Gill, about how to achieve that. You know, to, to be able to kind of like hit a man with a car door, with a speeding car door. And, you know, because I was imagining we'd have to like have some rigs, maybe we'd have to do some kind of visual effect. And he said, no, Paul, it's quite simple. We'll just hit someone with a car door. And, and that's what he did. Um, we did pad the car door with rubber just to make it a little uh, less impactful. But basically, that's just a man getting slammed uh, by a car door and spinning through the air as a result. 
He had to do it about five or six times. He stepped out of his car. Okay, I see. I need guns. Yeah, sword coming up in 50 yards. What happened? I don't know. Somebody must have grabbed it. What you mean? Roger Corman's movie was a very funny movie. I mean, it was a, a very overt satire. Uh, which we're not, obviously, but, you know, we wanted to maintain as much humour as possible. Because although this can be quite a brutal oh. film, it's also a fun film. And that was particularly fun. Yes. Uh, the way that was achieved was um, that was a dummy uh, that was uh, kicked out of the car um, and hit the metal post. And then it had a small amount of CG enhancement, uh, the spray of blood, um, a little bit of movement on the face. But what's great is immediately the new navigator does not want to be in the car. He'd rather be <laughs> anywhere else than in that car. Yeah, that, that usually gets a very good laugh. Release the dreadnought. And here she is, the dreadnought. A big inspiration from this uh, for this was uh, was clearly uh, the Road Warrior and the final scene where you have the oil tanker, and uh, we wanted to kind of take that to the next level. And the Road Warrior was a big influence for us, but um, I think that's only fair because uh, George Miller, who directed the Road Warrior, has frequently admitted that Death Race was a big influence for him. Uh, so in many ways, everything's come full circle. Everything goes back to Roger Corman. It does. So Dreadnought, what does that actually mean, Paul? Uh, well, Dreadnought um, was, it was originally a term for an ironclad warship. Um, back in the days when all warships were made of wood, uh, when they started uh, having ironclads, they were called Dreadnoughts uh, because they were assumed to be indestructible. And that was the kind of feeling that I wanted for this. It's kind of like a huge, big warship but moves on the land. We also just, again, wanted this section of the race to have something new and unexpected. And it underlines the extent of uh, Joan Allen's villainy. I mean, this is not a race with fair rules at all. No, it's a race that's manipulated for ratings. Which is why seeing uh, Machine Gun Joan Jensen outsmart her is uh, fantastic. I really like her grey suits. It's very Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Where the hell is that thing going? so bad what we were about to do, Paul. I mean, this is like Ben-Hur. This is Uber Ben-Hur, the wheels. Yeah, well, this is, um, you know, that was another big uh, influence to us, um, was Ben-Hur. And the whole idea of the Circus Maximus as well. You know, the Circus Maximus was, uh, you know, it was the Colosseum but oh. writ large, uh, where they would have all the chariot races in ancient Rome. And there's a great scene in Ben-Hur where they have these 
spikes on the wheels of the chariots, and that was a big influence for this. Again, there's no model work there. That shot you saw of the Porsche being dragged behind the dreadnought, that's all done full scale for real. Fuck me. This reminds me of what we did to Colin Salmon in the glass corridor in Resident Evil 1, that moment. Yes. When he goes shit just before he gets diced. Lists. Receiving. I want you to patch me through to another car. On it. Yeah, we really tried to kind of keep the the stuff in the pits as kinetic as possible in the term in, in the way that we shot them so that the interior of the car and the action sequences and the pits would kind of seamlessly fit together so uh, even when we're shooting in the pits you know we have a uh, handheld camera uh, quite often it's got a very skinny shutter um, you're trying to keep it even though it's just dialogue we're trying to keep it as exciting as possible This stunt coming up is, is truly spectacular. Um, we only built one dreadnought, so uh, this was very much a one-shot deal. Um, you know, we could only shoot it the once, and uh, thank goodness it turned out to be as spectacular as it was. Now, this whole thing is for real? Well, it's all for real apart from the little men flying off the top. Uh, they're a digital effect uh, for obvious reasons. Now that you can see this on DVD, I, sus I, I recommend going back and pausing on, on that shot where the dreadnought hits the ground and that guy in the tank turret gets squished because you can see a big spray of blood going straight up from the underside of the turret. We had lots of discussions about that stunt, whether we should build a miniature. Um, we actually thought of doing it fully CG, but I'm so glad we did it for real. Cause yeah, because I, I, there's so much detail in that shot that um, it would have been very hard to, to create that as a visual effect. Especially in daylight. Um, yeah, in broad daylight where, you know, the CG tends not to hold up so well. Is this one of the scenes, Paul, which you'd say sort of echoes Rollable when he's walking down there? Oh, the Jonathan, Jonathan, yeah. Frankenstein. The original Frankenstein. Rollable. The well, I might say that the original Rollable perhaps echoed the original Death Race. And you it's might be scene, right. It's a scene, I mean, the, that chanting of Frankenstein is taken from the original movie. Race car reflexes. You're the lost pal. Well, not this time. Got this feeling that you and Frank are close. Real close. That weird accent. You even kind of sound like. I was wondering, what if you... All the costumes here are all prison issue gear. Um, in terms of the money we spent on the costumes for this movie, it's probably the cheapest aspect of the film, and the cheapest costume budget of any movie we've made, because we just ordered it all from, uh, from a, a prison supplier. And of course, uh, as you can imagine, you know, prison wear is not that expensive. And also the race gear that all of the drivers wear. Although they're allowed to kind of wear different stuff for the race, the day of the race, they don't have to wear standard prison issue stuff. Um, we said to our costume designer, Gregory Marr, 
you have to make these costumes, the race costumes, from prison wear, because that's all they're going to be given access to. So they can dye it, they can cut it up, they can kind of, you know, sew bits and pieces together, but everything has to be made from something that's standard prison issue. And I think that kind of adds to the kind of believability of it all as well. You're going to kill him, of course. You want me to kill Frankenstein? Don't be stupid. Frankenstein can't die. After all, he's just a mask. This is a, a sequence that I call Paul's commercial for building a bomb. The instructional video. Yeah. I couldn't believe how long we were you were spending on shooting this. I mean, I now see why, but it still feels a bit like a commercial. This is the Caesar moment. Joan Allen addressing her inmates. I mean, there's very much a kind of Roman Greek gladiator feel to this film. Well, she's kind of like the evil Caesar. Um, yeah. And of, of course, I mean, the whole idea of of prisoners fighting for their freedom does go back to Roman times and goes back to the gladiators. And we're too dangerous to live with the rest of us. What is this shit? And the idea also of a society that's in collapse, focusing upon these kind of bloody confrontations. I mean, in our version, uh, everyone's watching it on the internet while the American economy collapses. In Rome, um, you know, everyone was going to the Circus Maximus, which would hold a third of the population of Rome at any one time. So literally a third of the population could be in the Circus Maximus watching chariot races while the Roman economy collapsed. And the empire kind of declined and fell. And the people in the races were slaves or um, prisoners because it's okay to see them kill each other. Just same idea here. And breathes with you and it draws inspiration from your courage. No one's ever gonna win five races. So, race well. Nobody's ever getting out of here. This was a tough day, Paul. You remember all that rain? Yeah, well, all these close-ups on Statham and uh, McShane, uh, they're very intense, but also they were very necessary because it was raining so hard, we had to erect like a big tent over the top of them. Uh, but the, the whole place was flooding. It was uh, Jason was wearing rubber boots because <laughs> he was standing in like a huge lake of water. It was a very very tough day. Confirm me. You can shoot me, but you can't motherfuck it. There. Nice bit of set dressing, Paul, the little dancing girl on the top of the monitor. Well, we, I put that there because um, I felt it was important when you come back and you see the, the frozen screen a little later, so you see what they were looking at, um, so you understand where the idea of escaping through that billboard came from, that you kind of recognise, you immediately kind of recall this moment. So I thought the more distinct I can make that video recorder and television, the better. So that's where all those things, that was right before we shot it. I just grabbed a bunch of stuff from the prop department and stuck them on there. Oh, this is not good. As much as possible, all of these prison guards that you see standing around were actual real prison guards. Um, so they would have the kind of, the real kind of attitude and swagger of the, the real people and add to the 
reality of the situation. And it also gave the actors someone to talk to as well. You know, the more they could be immersed in the reality of being in a prison environment, the more people they could talk to who really worked in prisons, the better. Because I want out of this shithole. I've already won three races, two more. Smoking Cohibas in my I love that word terminal. I just think it's so graphic. I love it on the back of all of the jackets. Um, terminal Island was actually inspired by the real Terminal Island, which is um, off the coast of California. It's off Long Beach Harbor. And uh, it actually, Terminal Island actually has a prison on it. And it used to be also a naval air force base. Um, and when that was decommissioned, uh, they used to do drag races on the abandoned runway. And that was where I really got the idea of a prison and a racetrack on an island from. Hey. I think you and Frank should have a little talk. Welcome. That's very, um, almost like Turner, that shot. Like an oil painting. Seven men dead. Cyan. Well, I think, uh, you know, what I like about kind of big industrial decay like this is it does have a beauty to it. Um, at least I think so. But then you did grow up in the northeast of England. Yeah. If you didn't find beauty in industrial decay, there they... would be no beauty. <laughs> Good point. Anything to stop him. It's mano y mano, and there will be no mercy. Tonight, only one man will... You know, I love these roadways, because, again, there's no CG set extensions. It's all just, we found a big location, and uh, and we shot it for real. You know, this long roadway uh, was really something we created. When Jeremy and I scouted this location to start with, this was just a gap between uh, two of the big train buildings. And um, there was a, a little bit of a roadway, but then there were also a lot of... Uh, small metal huts, there was a lot of grass, there were some big heaps of kind of earth and everything. So we kind of had it all flattened. We had all the huts knocked down, we had the earth flattened out. Uh, we put a lot of gravel and a lot of blacktop down to create our roadway. There were definitely times on making this movie that I felt more like an industrial engineer than a film director. Uh, because in between having to create all the roadways and create all the cars and everything be for real, we also had to build a lot of the rigs that would kind of spin and twist the cars in the way we wanted them uh, to make sure they would spin through the air in the right way. So um, I spent a lot of time talking about weight ratios and load-bearing structures. But if you do win, I want you to think about staying here as Frankenstein. With me. It's a great scene, this. I mean, she actually believes that he might consider what she's proposing to stay with him, to stay with her. It's pretty evil. Yeah. Your freedom. Go back to your daughter. She's kind of like Lady Macbeth almost. Thing is, are you really the best future she could possibly have? Are you really daddy material, or deep down, are you something else? If you decided that out there on that track is where you belong, it would be the most unselfish act of love I've ever seen. There's almost a slight erotic tension between them. I and mean, was that something you even you thought about particularly, Paul? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think if you listen, if you if if you make a prison movie, I think it's always charged with that sexual tension, especially when you put a woman in that environment. Right. 
And then also, you know, there's the whole undercurrent of kind of homoeroticism as well that kind of comes with prison movies. Yeah. Well, there's definitely eroticism around Natalie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's not typical of prison films, I guess. Unless it's Caged Heat, another Roger Corman classic. Perhaps we should consider remaking that. Tells me if you're gonna win, I'm supposed to stop you. Oh yeah? Yeah. Sounds like the odds are stacked against us. Then do what you do best. Drive. Gentlemen, this should be interesting. Nice editing from Niv and Howie here, who has cut a couple of films for us, uh, recently Resident Evil 3. Yeah, we did uh, Resident Evil Extinction together and then Niven came straight on to this. I think on average, and this is not to boast, but just on average, I think there's an edit every second in this film. That does sound quite boastful though. It's not, well, listen, I didn't cut it, Niven. It's all down to him. Damn it. Shit. Lid shield up ahead. Damn it! What happened? Tennessee must have deactivated it. Bitch! She's so pleased with herself. It's all about to change. Light me up. What is it with you and cigarettes, Paul? I mean, cigarettes in this movie, even in Event Horizon, we had cigarettes in space. (laughs) I mean, you don't even smoke. Well, you can't make a prison movie and not have cigarettes. I mean, they're such a part of the fabric of kind of prison life. That's the currency, I guess. Pleased with himself. This was a tough location because at night we had to stop filming at midnight because uh, of the sound, the local residents. Although it was um, a rundown industrial silo, there were actually very expensive condos around. Well, also, you're right by the water, and sound travels across the water. I mean, we, we would, you would be able to hear these gun battles from like 10 miles away in Montreal. The other side of Montreal could hear when we started shooting these machine guns. And also, these machine guns, they're very loud. You know, the concussive force of these things are phenomenal when you stand very close to them. 
Yeah, Charlie Taylor, our armorer, who again we've used on a number of films. Brilliant uh, gun guy from Toronto. Just did an awesome job getting this hardware together. He did Resident Evil 2 and 3 for us. Shit! Lit shield and quarter lap. You hear that? Lit shield and the quarter lap. Let them get the shield. Keep the viewers interested. Son of a bitch, he got the shield! Arm the explosive. I love the production design inside uh, Hennessy's control room. All that peeling paintwork coming off the walls and the ceilings. I mean, that's all real. I mean, that's, that's very hard to art direct. You know, that kind of crumbling um, paintwork feel. I mean, it's um, even if you pay a fortune for it, you can never really get it to look right. And that was what was so great about these locations is having that kind of depth and texture already existing. Yeah, Paul Osterbury was very good at building on what was already there. Yeah, although we did build some sets for this movie, I mean, primarily it is a 90% a location picture. Because uh, even when we did build things like the control room, we were building on location. And that was kind of refreshing for us, because a lot of our movies tend to be very set heavy, you know, like the Resident Evil films or Event Horizon, which was all shot on set. They're headed for the bridge. Their weapons, hit the kill switches. This has to be one of my favorite filming moments ever, was hearing Joan Allen swear like this. And then especially in the, uh, the scene coming up, the okay cocksucker, fuck with me and we'll see who shits on the sidewalk. Um, the very first take of that was completely unusable. And uh, not anything to do with Joan Allen because her performance as always is fantastic from take one onwards. But uh, the camera crew were so shocked to hear her swear, because she's a very well-spoken woman in real life, that you could see the shots all going out of focus, because the focus puller stopped paying attention. They, they were just so stunned that these words were coming out of her mouth with such conviction. And we'll see who shits on the sidewalk. Somebody's mad right now. Nobody fucks with my car. When Joan started working with us, um, her agent sent her a large basket of flowers, which agents normally do when actors start working on a movie. And normally they send a little card that says, good luck with the film, Joan, you know, love your agents. Uh, she got the usual basket of flowers, but when she opened the card, it said, okay, cocksucker, fuck with me and we'll see who shits on the sidewalk. Yeah, her agent really, uh, I think that was the main reason he wanted her to do the film, was to hear her <laughs> say that. Just want to know who I'm riding with. Jensen, Ames, like, like the car, like the car. Well, Jensen, Ames, I hope you got a plan. It's not like we're going to get very far. You're right. We won't. Um, that was uh, 
a lot of dialogue there that was uh, deleted from the theatrical version of the movie. Um, you know, we thought it was a nice moment, but ultimately, you know, when you're building towards the climax of a film, it felt like that extra 20, 25 seconds of dialogue was a little redundant and kind of took away from the dramatic build that the movie and the head of steam that the movie was establishing. Um, so for the theatrical version, we took that out. Very nice modification. Extra half gallon. All that car crashing on the, on the bridge for real. In fact, that shot where the gas tank uh, tumbles towards the police cars, um, again, that was a real gas tank, um, and uh, that, I think, was the last shot I shot on the movie. And you can kind of see the sky was starting to get quite blue in the background. Dawn was coming up, and we were racing against the, racing against the sun. of a visual man. Great helicopter pilot Fred North going closer than uh, he probably should, which uh, we really appreciate. Yeah, when you do those kind of aerial shots, um, you know, the helicopter pilot is very much, he is like the cameraman, uh, you know, because the helicopter is, the helicopter and the camera have to move in unison to get you the shot you want. Um, so Fred, that's why we were so insistent on getting him, because I think he's probably the, the best guy working in the industry right now. And he would get the helicopter real low to the ground. I mean, it was phenomenal. Um, you know, he would literally be skimming the ground very low. You know, he was originally from Montreal, Fred, although he lives in L.A. And his wife would be, uh, would run the situation on the ground. Very strong team. Very expensive as well. Worth every penny. Of course. Or every cent. So now they've escaped back to the mainland and, um, they're in kind of an industrial area, which you probably, I mean, hopefully you can't see it, but this is actually exactly the same place where we started the movie. Um, this is the steelworks where uh, the Jason works. is uh, kind of queuing up to get his money and the riot is all in that area right there that the helicopters have just flown over. Um, we were going to shoot in a different location, but ultimately I saw this one at night and I thought, you know what, this is a better location uh, and uh, no one's ever going to realize that it's the same place. Fantastic wall of flame there. This is really iconic. They've stopped him, ma'am. This was uh, so difficult, this poor stunt woman. When, when I was shooting this, um, the downdraft from the helicopters was so great uh, she was in constant danger of being blown off the top of that car. Keep your hands where we can see them. You are under 
See in that shot, she's struggling to kind of stay on the top of the car there. I love that steaming river of effluent or whatever it was. It was really, it was really unpleasant looking. I was very happy to see it when I turned up on location that night. Because uh, during the day, that steaming didn't occur. It was only kind of in the middle of the night when the temperature dropped that you saw all that steam. Nice. The fact you have thoughts like these might make someone question your uh... My taste. Yeah, so to speak. I don't know about you, but I'm headed to Miami. This interior was shot on a, on a um, back at the, uh, back at Alston where we shot everything else. Just in a little set there. Train interior. It's a shame I didn't get to take care of that bitch Hennessy. Yeah, it is a shame. We darkened the sky down considerably here because it was actually dawn to get that shot. Frankenstein has been retrieved, and ma'am, ratings are off the charts. Gifts and congratulations are already coming in. You win again. Mr. Ulrich, I always win. Damn. I love this game. And that's originally where the movie ended, uh, with that satellite dish tumbling towards the camera. And, uh... You know, there was, in an earlier version of the script, uh, there was a, another ending where you'd show kind of Jason reunited with his child. And um, after we, we finished shooting the movie and uh, we tested the film, uh, the movie played great and we got huge applause at the end. And, um, but the one thing that uh, I think the audience were missing was a sense of resolution uh, for Jason and for Tyrese and also for Natalie's character. Um, so we kind of... Uh, we came up with this. I mean, it wasn't too dissimilar to what uh, had been written in an earlier draft of the screenplay. Um, by this point, we were out of Montreal and uh, we were editing the movie down in Los Angeles. So uh, what we did was uh, we shot all of this in the valley. And uh, it's all in a junkyard in the valley. We dumped uh, four tons of sand down because this is all blacktop in the original junkyard. So we put the sand down to make it seem a little more kind of Mexican, a bit more dusty. And uh, then small factoid, that car that Natalie just drove up in is actually uh, Vin Diesel's car from Fast and Furious, uh, which will be out this coming su summer, I believe. I'm not sure that Vin knows that, actually, Paul. Well, he does now. Yeah, we uh, had the... We gave, we gave it a different paint job, though, so it doesn't look quite the same. We had the same uh, picture car coordinator that uh, does the Fast and the Furious films, Dennis McCarthy, who is a brilliant car guy. So long. I had trouble getting my release papers approved. Natalie looking very happy, although actually on the day she wasn't so happy because she was actually on holiday in Hawaii and we had to bring her back to come shooting in a scrap metal yard. 
Jason's little baby. Um, as always, when you shoot these kind of scenes, um, that that little girl is actually an identical twin. Um, because you can only really have like a child, you can only work a child for an hour. Um, so to kind of double the time you have, uh, you have you have identical twins. So you get two hours worth of work out of the two kids. And you tend to just put whichever one in camera is, uh, in front of the camera is kind of behaving the most. This world is perfect. Heaven knows I'm not. But when you work with children, everything revolves around them really. And when it's nap time, it's nap time. When you have a child, isn't that the case, Paul, as you've just had one? Yes, when, yes. Everything revolves really around your, your child. Biggest, your biggest production is going on at home. My greatest production. Yeah. Certainly my best. Uh, this is <laughs> this disclaimer is uh, something we legally had to put at the end, but I love it. I think it's so funny. It just makes, makes me laugh every time. It just the thought that someone maybe will go and strap a heavy machine gun to the front of their car and start shooting away on the freeway. Now, of course, follows the endless end credits, which none of you are going to watch on DVD or Blu-ray. But I would recommend fast-forwarding to the end because there's a special little surprise there. My favourite line of dialogue from the movie repeated one last time. Uh, so, Jeremy and I are no different to the rest of you. We're not going to sit and watch the credits either. Um, it's been a pleasure talking about Death Race. Uh, it's a movie that took us 14 years to make. It's a real labour of love for us. We're, we couldn't be more happy and more proud of the film. Um, and uh, I hope you really enjoyed it. So that's uh, Jeremy signing off. And Paul. Goodbye.
Hey, cocksucker. Fuck with me, and we'll see who shits on the sidewalk. <laughs> 